What up? This is Zach uh, from the No Structure Podcast, starting a new series called Structureless Conversation. Uh, first guest is going to be Tor. We'll be talking about the new EP. We're going to be talking about his roots uh, as far as making music is concerned, being a creative, AI, all those cool things that have to do with music. Check out his new EP. Most of you probably already know Tor from being on the podcast. He is our engineer with the No Structure Podcast. Um, he's actually the first person to be on Structureless Conversation. So um, we have Tor here. Tor, you want to give yourself a little bit of an introduction? I think we've had you on before, but for people that might not know you. Yeah, well, it's great to be on mic and on camera yeah, behind, right. behind the scenes for, I don't know, close to two years now, a year and a half or something yeah, like that. Damn, two um, years, yeah. Yeah, it's been good stuff yeah, so good far, stuff, man. Yeah, so yeah, thanks yeah, for right. having me. My name's Tor. I'm an artist and owner of this studio. My stage name is Tor Bjorn. I DJ, I rap, I produce, do all kinds of stuff. And um, yeah, when I'm not doing that, I'm producing the No Structure podcast. There you go. There you go. Um, so I'm going to start off by doing like kind of rapid fire questions. Great. Um, so I'm just looking for your first answer. No need to explain anything just to kind of get to know a little bit more about you as well as uh, it'll you know pertain to some of the topics we have. Great. Um, so let's get started. So what was the first instrument you learned? Violin. Ooh, nice. First album you remember loving? Ooh, Marvin Gaye. I can't remember which one. It might have been like the best of Marvin Gaye. But yeah, it was like Motown for sure. Nice, nice, nice. Describe your parents' music taste in one word. Uh, Mom loves classical music. Dad like only listens to disco. Sick. (laughs) That's that's fucking awesome. (laughs) Uh, Describe your style of hip hop in one word. Mm, 90s hip hop with EDM drops. Nice. Uh, favorite album from any genre? Oh, that's such a hard rapid fire question. I'm going to just right. have to pick the first one that I think of. It came from um, Marvin Gaye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the drive-in, Relationship of Command. They're a punk band. I loved that Ooh. band in high school and college. Okay, I'm going to check that out. Uh, favorite artist in any genre? Mm, Ivy Lab. Ivy Lab, I've never heard of them. They're... UK London based uh, oh, production production duo. It's like right up my alley. It was like EDM mixed with hip hop. Okay, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Love those guys. Um, artists who has influenced your work? Most recently, Dark Time Sunshine. Oh, okay. They're the group that I they brought me on as their yeah. touring DJ, and the MC of that group has been a huge influence for me as like a rapper. That's really cool. Why, yeah. why specifically? He's just really, really smart with his lyrics and really catchy with his lyrics. Awesome. That's a good answer. Good answer. Uh, producing or rapping? Producing. Hip-hop or EDM? EDM. DJing or performing? Uh, performing. Uh, go-to meal while on tour? Oh, That's a really hard one. If it's bar food, like chicken wings. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, now we're talking. Uh, favorite place from touring? Oh, favorite place from touring? Most recently, um, Prague. Prague. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, your favorite song of yours to perform? Probably Froze, which is one of my new songs that's coming out. Full circle going back to my origins. Staying home's boring, so we going for it. Rather die exploring. Cause you ain't on this earth for long and growing old is suburbia. Yeah, they all froze. Ice cold shiver, they'll snap nose, dripping through the clothes into the bone. They all froze. Ice cold shiver, they'll snap nose, dripping through the clothes into the bone. They all
Eminem song, you'd kill it karaoke. Um, Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay, so funny story about that particular song. I used to work at a call center mm-hmm. a long time ago. There was a gentleman there, a big, white, red-haired fella, and every single person would kind of look at him like, hey, I know who that guy is. Turns out if you go on YouTube, he has one of the worst American Idol auditions ever. He tries oh. to sing Bohemian Rhapsody and absolutely butchers it. My name is Stephen Thone. I am currently living in Seattle, Washington. Okay, who are you as good as, in your opinion? The lead singer from uh, Queen. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yes. Is this the real life? Or is this just fantasy? Dude, that sucks. Yeah, strange, strange. Of all, strange of all the things to be known for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. bad American Idol audition yeah. is. And he, and he thought he was good. That's what the worst part about it was. He's like, oh, I killed that. They're like, mm, oh, uh, that's going to be a no for me, dog. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, Simon didn't even have to say anything. He just gave him the look, you know. But, Damn. Yeah. Tough. Um, and last but not least, one word to describe your new EP. Dope. There you go. There you go. All right, well, let's get into it. So. I want to dive a little bit into history of you as a musician. Uh, I think that's important because it tells kind of like the path that you've been going on. Yeah. When did you first decide you wanted to become a musician? I was kind of born into it. I don't think I really decided. Um, My parents put me into like violin lessons when I was like four. Okay. So my cousins, uh, my older cousins did it before me. um, And my mom and her sister were also like collegiate musicians, um, cellist and flautist respectively. And so I think they just kind of knew like what, how that benefited them and their brain development and their lifestyle and all, you know, friendships and all that kind of stuff through music. And so they, they kind of were just like, this is what you're doing and grateful for it. Cause like I started in classical music and they say like, if you play like Beethoven and stuff for your baby, it like makes your baby smarter. So I think that was like a big part of, like it helped me a lot as a kid. Oh, awesome. Okay. What about your dad? Was he musically inclined or just a big music listener, but yeah. can't, couldn't hold a tune to save his life. Probably oh, he's, like he's like the tech guy. Um, so it was like super Apple fanboy. He was always like up on the latest, like camcorder technology. Okay. Um, also super into cars and boats and all that kind of stuff. So nice. when it came to like the toys and the tech, he was the one that gave me all of that knowledge. Okay. So I'm kind of seeing where the, the combination comes in with you with the producing and with the music. Yeah. Uh, you get your tech side from your dad. Totally. Music from mom. And polar opposites. Mom, my mom once emailed me asking to remind her what her email password was. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's a true That's story. Great, yeah. I don't know how that even happens, but yeah, she's, she's gotten better, but you know, she's behind the times when it comes to tech for definitely, sure. Definitely. Yeah. My grandmother started learning how to use emojis. Yeah, it's, it's, it has what, been fantastic. What emojis does, does a grandma use? Uh, it's always the most random ones that you wouldn't think of. Yeah. But they somehow pertain to whatever she's talking about. Okay. So there's very, like, metaphorical emoji use, right? So, yes. like, someone posts a tree, they're not really talking about a tree. Right. Right? So, but I feel like that generation, our parents, maybe grandparents' generation, are pretty literal with yeah, their emoji exactly. use, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I always Yeah, they always actually curious. think the eggplant is the eggplant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's talk about balancing between being a producer and artist. Cause we, uh-huh. we just touched on um, that a little bit. How do you decide what you want to work on um, and who you want to collaborate with? Like, is it, do you prefer to do more producing than actually writing music or how do you find that balance between the two? It kind of 
which one I'm into more sort of fluctuates a little bit right now because um, I've been on this tip of getting ready for this tour and this EP. I'm really like artist minded. I'm thinking about myself on stage, on the mic, and you know, per- putting these shows together and all that stuff. Um, but sometimes that's not always where my head's at. And I have a lot of friends who are really talented who I really like to support, mm-hmm. and I see in their projects and their endeavors. From the outside looking in, it's easy to see like, ah, oh, you're just missing these like one or two pieces to your yeah. project that would like really make it great. And then I can kind of step into that like Scotty Pippen support role and just go. play second fiddle, um, happily so. Um, so it kind of goes back and forth. But I think big picture, like um, I like performing more than producing because I think I am kind of egotistical at the end of the day, <laughs> like being in the limelight. But yeah, um, I, I have like been more financially successful as a producer too, and so you know, ego comes into play there. I do like getting paid for what I do as well. Definitely. What, uh, how do you figure out what you want to give to other people and what you want to actually rap on? Like, is there, is there certain tracks where you're just like, ah, I want to hold that one. I don't want to give it to anybody or do yeah. you kind of just create without thinking about yourself. It's a tough one. I, I create, I do like big, um, like stints of like beat making sessions where I'll just like only make instrumental beats and not thinking, think about writing on them. Mm -hmm. And then once like the whole, like a lot of those is done then I kind of can pick and choose the ones that I want to keep for myself. Um, but there's been a handful of times where I've had to, I've had to be like, I think so-and-so would actually be better on this song than me. And it can be hard to give those beats up to other people because i don't know i feel like i own it it's like my creation it's my thing that i made right so it can be hard to give that away to someone else but at the end of the day i do want just want the best song to happen yeah for sure sometimes i'm not the best songwriter for that song do you ever regret giving somebody a beat feel like man i should have held that one yeah yeah um you don't have to like say. You know, like, no, I, w- I wouldn't call anyone. I don't think anyone that's that's rapped or, or written a song to any of my beats has like done a bad job. But um, I definitely have written to beats that I thought was going to be my track that I've mm-hmm. ended up like scrapping my part of it and giving it to someone else. And then I've maybe felt in my inner you know dialogue that I was like, ah, I feel like what I did was actually better. Or maybe it would have been cooler. Or maybe I just thought it was. I don't yeah. know. But do you yeah. maybe think you have demoitis? Like you're like, oh, this sounds good, but when I what was original sounded just a little bit better. Yeah, I I, I definitely have have a little bit of that, but um, I just try to step outside of that because I think sure. I'm, when you're writing on something and when you ha- are producing on something, you're so biased in both of those yeah. things. So I don't know. I try to I try to support as much as I can because you know everyone's everyone deserves to win in some way and I get to win either way. Even if I'm just a producer yeah. credit, it still is like something that I helped make. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Ego comes into play in that in a big way. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, far as producing wise, like who were some of your influences, uh, as you were starting to make beats? Like, was there any particular one that you were like, I want to make music like him or make beats like him? I or always, a- um, I always looked up to people that could do a lot of different things like very well. They maybe weren't like the best at any one thing, but mm-hmm. like, so Pharrell comes to mind, Definitely really good rapper, beat. really good singer, obviously produced beats for like some of the greats. Creative genius. Um, you know, Kanye in his heyday was definitely that when, you know, before whatever's going we're gonna on right the now. Name out. Yeah. People <laughs> yeah. know who we're talking about, but we're going to bleep the yeah. name out. <laughs> um, but, you know, thinking about like graduation and mm-hmm. late registration and all, all of that Beautiful area music. of him. Um, Looked up to him because he was doing both at a high level. Um, I'm trying to think 
of Jay Dilla is another person. I don't think that he yeah, really like rapped or was on the mic, but I always appreciated that he was really good at making the beats and he was really good at like being the person that orchestrated the whole project. Yep. Um, so there's a group called Slum Village. Yeah, love um, Slum Village. They were just on the Larry June project. I don't know if you checked it out, but that they were just on there. Great, yeah? great stuff. Nice, yeah. I didn't see that. I'll have to yeah. check them out. I've seen them live twice, okay. and it was obviously after Dilla passed. Um, but I always thought that that was really cool because traditionally in hip-hop, like the rapper is like the star. Mm-hmm. But even him, ju- I don't even think he was on stage for all of their tours and stuff while he was still alive, but he was like the star of a project that his yeah. face was never on. I always thought that was really cool. That is very interesting. What do you think about uh, like an artist like MF Doom who had to not had to wear a mask but did wear a mask? Like, How hard do you think that it is to be to always like not want to put your face out there. Like I think of Daft Punk sometimes too. When yeah, I think regard. those guys like they kind of like pioneered that from a marketing standpoint mm-hmm. in a way. And um, there's so after he after Doom like revealed his face, and I think on the documentaries called Our Vinyl Weighs a Ton. It's about um, Stones Throw Records, which he was a big part of that right. record label early on. Dilla was on that label as well. He talks about how um, he like just realized that. F- at some point that like this uh this like idol that becomes the the image of what a music project is isn't necessarily about the person right and so i think he i may be paraphrasing it a little bit but that's why he chose to wear the mask because he's like it doesn't matter who the person is it just matter, matters that that idol or that image is recognizable mm-hmm. and i thought that was really cool daft punk obviously are like probably the one of the first, if not at least the biggest, to ever right, do it. For sure. And then think about how many people have done that since then. Dead Mouse and uh, Marshmallow. Marshmallow, yeah. Um, there's this other new-ish um, character in EDM called Melon, which is just melon. like a watermelon, like a cartoonish watermelon so head. Like a, it's just a watermelon head? Yeah, like you would think like a cartoon drawing like a half circle oh, of a watermelon. And Check so then it's it's kind of cool from like a, a lore perspective yeah. because people that are really into the culture of that, what's the first thing they're going to ask? Who is that? Yeah, right. We exactly. want to know. Like Marshmallow, there was always rumors that it was different DJs that were under the mask. Like one night it would be somebody and then it would be somebody else and you never knew who he was. Yeah. And I always thought that, that was cool. It's just like the mis- the mystery is pretty cool. Totally. Yeah. And that it, it, leaves, um, it leaves a lot to the imagination. Right. And I think that fuels the conversation which is just really smart because there's like uh something like eighty thousand new songs come out every day on spotify and so if you could do something to be at the top of the list of those what's most interesting that day or you basically like have to as an artist now and so i think that's a really clever way that people do that to cut through the noise yeah i do feel like uh you have to create like an entire universe around yourself now not only is it just the music but like what you're doing the touring the merchandise the videos like everything has to like kind of tell your story but not necessarily like be honed in on something right like everything even if it's different projects different music videos and stuff they all kind of build a like an aesthetic together yeah yeah you gotta um you gotta have themes you gotta have like you know the the music being catchy or um, a song telling a story, I feel like isn't quite enough right. now. I feel like there has to be a thread that ties your whole, uh, like all of your song, your whole career, and your aesthetic as an artist together. And then, especially for each album or each project, yeah. like put, having like a location or a place or some kind of setting, I think is like crucial. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, what do you think your biggest area of growth has been since you started as a music artist? And do you ever go back and listen to like your early projects 
to like maybe draw inspiration or be like, mm-hmm. I could have changed this and this. Yeah. I think that, um, I think it's been kind of like a parabola. I think I started um, really, really caring that I was going to make music that a lot of people didn't like. But I think that I was a little misguided because I didn't necessarily know who was listening. Yeah. So I had this sort of like imaginary sense of like, oh, I'm going to play in this song. And, and, you know, I was playing guitar in, in the early days and play this song and like it's going to really rock on stage. And like whoever's there, they're going to be like dancing mm-hmm. and whatever. And that's like a really cool um, ideal, but it's like not really rooted in reality. Right. And so I think that um, I think when I realized that, that that was like kind of like a fantasy or whatever, like that was not necessarily the, the best mindset to have while I was creating. I think I stopped caring about that um, fictitious fan so much mm-hmm. and just thought about myself as the listener towards the middle of my career. It was like, I'm just going to make the weirdest stuff that's the most entertaining to me. And it's going to mix up all the things that I'm interested in yeah. and I'll love it and that'll be authentic. And then that's fine. Um, and then I realized that I was for a long time, I was making music that I don't think anyone like really understood or found mm-hmm. that interesting or it was like just super weird and avant-garde. Yeah. And I think I'm kind of coming full circle now, still being authentic, but at least now drawing on things that my experience has shown me that, um, actual real fans, not just like imaginary people that I'm thinking of, um, will react and have reacted to this. Definitely, definitely. What do you think has been the biggest learning experience of, as far as being an artist? I think that um, I think it's been to entertain yourself as the listener first. And mm, okay. Rick Rubin said this recently in an interview. Maybe you've seen it, where he's yeah. like. Um, He's like, don't write music for your fans or don't write music for your friends, which I thought was interesting Mm because a lot of people um, who I've watched in interviews that I look up for or say, like, write what your friends will like. Those are going to be your first supporters. But Rick Rubin kind of went against that in a recent interview. and And he was like, the thing is, your friends don't know what they like until they like it. So you are you need to write for the journey that you're going to take them on. Yeah, for sure. And don't, don't write what you think they will like, write what you know that you will like, and then they will follow you because you're the curator. Yeah. I yeah, thought that, that was sense. really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I've actually been reading his book. Um, it's called a creative, I think it's called a creative boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's really, his, his book is really enlightening. It just talks a lot about um, just kind of not pigeonholing yourself as an artist and being open to new experiences and just a new way of doing things and the way of seeing the world. It's like, not just about being a creative, but it's kind of like using your creativity to also see a different side of the world, which I thought it was, it was pretty cool. His book is really good. Yeah. He's uh, a really smart guy, but he, he, um, he doesn't have a lot of like actual like abilities in mm-hmm. the things that he's like so well known for. I think the interview that he was on recently was with Anderson Cooper. Okay. I've been seeing on like TikTok this clip out of context, but Anderson Cooper was like, so do you play any instruments? And he was like, no, not a single one. And he was <laughs> yeah. like, do you know how to like run the soundboard? And he was like, I have no idea how any of that works. And he was like, what are they paying you for? Yeah, right. And that was the end of the clip. He's like, okay, <laughs> kind of roasted him with that out of context clip. But if you watch the full clip, he talks about um, how he's like, people come to me because of that journey. And like, they like the journeys that I've taken people on and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I've seen a video of Rick Rubin, he's usually laying on some couch while somebody's recording with his shoes off and just kind of like his eyes closed and his arms behind his head. And he's just kind of just vibing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, um, I'm probably going to say the name of the album wrong, but it was Jay-Z's like 
um, Carta Magnum Opus oh, or yeah, um, what is it called? Uh, I'm saying it Magna wrong. Magna Carta Holy Grail. That's the yeah. one. Um, awesome trailer for that album before it came that, out. That trailer and Rick was Rubin is literally asleep on a couch. Maybe in that's, the, that's the, the, the exact one I'm thinking of because it was like a, a black and white Samsung commercial or something, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. And they blow the speaker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trying to play, I think it was like Tom Ford or something like that. Yeah. Damn, that's awesome. Damn, that takes me back to that was like summer two thousand and like fifteen. Yeah, man, it was a good time. That was a good album too. Yeah, that was a good album. Uh, tell me about the first time you performed and how that's changed to now. I performed a lot of violin as a kid. So okay. I, as an orchestra kid, um, and as the grandkid of my of an immigrant from Norway, mm-hmm. my grandmother was a folk musician guitarist. So she brought a lot of her like um, folk music from her home country over taught that to the grand her kids and the grandkids yeah and um we performed that at some of her like norwegian um like sons of norway daughters of norway foundation events that she was a part of so those are some of the earliest performances folk music with grandma playing violin and her playing guitar or um like youth orchestra performances Mm -hmm. um so that stuff that got me on stage when I was really young. And so I feel really lucky. I kind of, the stage fright thing was never really a part of my experience or like the, you know, just whatever the anxiety that comes with that. Cause yeah. I performed in that way a lot as a kid, but getting into contemporary music and playing in bands in high school and college, getting into hip hop in college and rapping after college is like very different. Cause when you're one person in like a big string folk group group you know my family band or whatever you want to call it there was mm-hmm. like 10 of us on stage if you <laughs> screw that's up an awesome experience yeah man. all the cousins and um uh some of our um friends that took from the same violin teacher that i took from as a kid if you have a bad gig and it's like 10 people on violin all playing the same folk tune and so it's like pretty low risk yeah um and in an orchestra too if you're one of you know uh, 15 violins in the orchestra if you're like play a couple sour notes like you probably get away with yeah. it and people don't notice right but if you're the only person singing on stage and you forget part of your verse that you're rapping yep it's a very different you know it's a lot more impact in uh fucking up that performance i don't know if you're trying to not swear on this sorry oh no no please please feel free to swear uh i think i swore at the first 10 seconds of this. okay okay <laughs> but yeah it's so so it's very different so i think um Playing in bands in high school and college, I I kind of consider those some of my my first performances. Yeah, even definitely. though I'd been on stage a lot before that, just because like all of a sudden the um, the like risk of messing up and like the uh, the impact of my role on stage was like much higher mm-hmm. in those situations. So um, probably probably playing guitar when I was like 14 or 15, maybe in like an old, like punk ska band in high school. Nice. And we would play at I don't even know, some youth group place that yeah. would let bands play or something like that. Those are probably like the first real shows that I played. Yeah. Okay. So what about your first like real show as an artist, like a full on I've committed to this. I'm going to be doing this. Yeah. As, um, as a solo, as a solo performer, um, Probably like maybe seven years ago, like DJing as a soloist on stage. Okay, that was a, probably the like most. Um, I keep saying high risk, but I don't know if that's the the right term for it. But that's like high pressure is what yeah, I'm looking okay. for because it's literally like I'm responsible for everything that's happening musically, and if I fuck up, then it's on me. Yeah. Um, 
so that was, I'm trying to think of my first gig, was either at, at the Nectar Lounge up in Seattle yeah. or at the Monkey Loft up in Seattle. Oh, okay, I love both those places. Yeah. Yeah. Great times. Actually, going back to what you were saying about your grandmother, like how much of uh, her, like her early impact on your life as far as music, how much of that still creeps into the music that you make today? It it was a huge part of my early days of music, and then it I kind of like rejected the my like family oh, okay. heritage thing for a long time. I don't know, as just being like a stubborn teenager, I yeah. had it in my head that like that stuff's really not cool. Yeah, no, and yeah, I get it. That was like the, you know, the fiddle tunes that I played as a little kid and I was like literally like playing shows with my mom and stuff. And <laughs> I was like, this is, when I look at all my like rock stars that I idolize, like none of them have their mom on stage That's when they're true. performing. Yeah. So I think some part of my, um, you know, in my teen years and college years, I kind of rejected that. And then, now in adulthood, coming full circle and recognizing um, how I wouldn't be doing any of this without my grandma, like all of a sudden sure. that stuff became very cool again. Yeah, and it is authentically part of my upbringing and my background and my family's heritage. And so um, it was a, it's been a big part and a big centerpiece of the EP that I'm releasing <laughs> this month. All of the songs have like this hip hop influence that I love and this EDM influence that I love. And then all of like the melodies and the samples or the instruments that we recorded come from traditional Norwegian music. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So, well, yeah, we'll get to the EP a little bit later, but that's that's good, good information to know. Uh, I want to know a little bit about your tech ability. So you did talk about your father. You said that he was very into tech and all of that. Yeah. Um, so as far as producing music, were you self-taught? How did that come about? Was it, I just opened up Fruity Loops one day and started messing with it. Or how did that, how did you start producing? I had a family computer um, that I had access to in middle school, and I had got my first like bass guitar. Oh, and nice. I realized that the the microphone for the computer plugged into like the same type of plug on the back of it that yeah. my bass guitar plugged into. And so, just messing around one day, I plugged that in and hit the sound recorder app. It sounded like totally messed up. I wasn't using the right equipment or plugging it in the right way or something. But I was like, this is cool. I can actually like play this note on my bass guitar and it's like recording into the computer. And then like the light bulb went off and I was like, I think that's how people make a CD. And so oh, I just like man. okay. What limited um, you know, chat rooms and limited websites and stuff were available it, at that time, I was on like America Online or whatever the hell yeah, we had to get up, on the yeah, internet. You get kicked yeah. off if, the pho- if you get a phone call on the landline. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. So I just, I got really like fascinated with that because um, through kind of what was handed down to me for my dad's abilities, I was like pretty proficient at the computer stuff. Okay. And um, was really into music and, you know, had a guitar at the time and really wanted to be doing bands and wanted to figure out how to record myself. And so... I just started like experimenting. Um, I found you mentioned Fruity Loops. I think it's like a classic starter for a lot think, of people. I think we've I found, all tried to get on Fruity Loops or GarageBand and yeah, something. I don't remember even how I got it. I 
it was like some illegal download. Yeah, yeah, I for like Kazar, one of those LimeWire. Yeah. yeah, and um, you know, so messing around with that kind of stuff. And uh, a, my older cousin had a friend that was kind of on the same wavelength, but he had an actual little like mixing board. That was like his church's old mixing board oh, that nice. they got rid of. And I was like, oh, did you know you could like plug your guitar into the computer? And he was like, I've got even one better for you. <laughs> you can plug mics and all this stuff into this mixing board and plug the mixing board into the computer. And then like we realized all of a sudden we're like, we could have the whole band play together at the same time. Yeah. And so it just kind of built from there. Um, the high school that I went to was the Tacoma School of the Arts. Okay. And a friend of mine from my youth orchestra saw that I was kind of getting into the recording stuff and I was like, yeah, but it sounds really bad and I don't really know what to do. So, and he was like, oh, you need to go into like a real studio and they'll teach you at this high school. They have this like studio class that you can take. And so I had never heard of that in high school before. I didn't even know you could go to school for that at the time. So that was like the only path that I knew existed for me to learn more about this. So I literally just like only focused on that. And I was like, whatever I have to do to get into this school, I was like, I'll start actually doing my homework. Like, yeah, I don't care yeah, yeah. What, whatever it takes. And um, I was lucky I got accepted to the school and just busted my ass the whole time that I was at that school. Any free period, any lunch period, anytime I could convince a teacher to stay for like half an hour after school, I would be in that studio trying to figure it out. That's awesome. And um, ended up taking it to um, college just from getting really good, well, getting relatively pretty good as a high school recording engineer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just kept pursuing it. Yeah, that's crazy. And so it's crazy to look back and think of how like all the little things in your life added up to what your path is now. Like you talk about your family being musically inclined, your friends just having happened to having the mixer. Like it's it's interesting to go back and look at in totality and be like, man, I really was destined to be in this place that I'm at now. Yeah. That's crazy. It, that stuff is really trippy and it's it's freaky to think like if I didn't meet that one person on that one day like maybe none of this would have happened yeah. and that that's like a super trippy thing that too. sounds like fate for real yeah that sounds like fate um from a producing standpoint what's your favorite thing about making music like is it like kind of compiling all the instruments together or is it like the finished product is it making a melody like what's your favorite part of producing a, a track I think my favorite part of producing a track is you are like the whole band and the conductor. Yeah. All in one. Yeah. Um, I always loved, uh, I didn't play every instrument in, in orchestra when I was doing that stuff. But when I started getting into rock bands, I played drums well enough to, to play in like a high school band, bass and guitar were similar enough. I sang like a little tiny bit of piano and I always loved, um, recording because I got to be the whole band. Okay. And when I was, in those bands, I was usually like the main songwriter or maybe I was just the bossiest dude in the room, <laughs> but I was like always helping people like tell them what to play or like maybe try this chord or maybe try that note or, you know, hit the symbol here, those kind of things. And, um, it's great when you are collaborating with people that are really into that feedback, but not everyone is always into that feedback. That's true. And, um, double standard on my part because I was never into taking that feedback, but I was always <laughs> the bossiest one. So that was really cool about being in the studio is obviously in a band rehearsal space, you can't play everything at the same time, but on your recording software, you can, or yeah. at least you can make the recording sound that way. Um, so that was really cool. And um, that was really like what uh, kept me interested in it in the first place. 
but just like diving into the technology and how many tools and um, how many like different ways to make music are available. Like when I discovered sampling and how, um, you know, people with who may or may not have any musical capability on an instrument were using recorded samples to create these like masterpiece, like collages of music that totally blew my mind that I was like, this dude doesn't play any instruments and he has the coolest sounding song I've ever heard because he knows that side of the technology and those techniques. And so it just goes so deep. Yeah. Do you think that you were a natural at producing or do you think that it was more like having to learn as you go? Do you think that it was something that you were just like, you started just messing with and it just came naturally or did you feel like it had to evolve over time? It definitely evolved over time. I think I was a natural at engineering. So like using all of the equipment and setting the equipment up properly so that it sounds musical has always been my strong suit. Okay. Producing, like how do you orchestrate this whole recording and make sure that every part of it is um, musical and cohesive? That's something that has taken me a long time to get good at. And the other thing that I don't think producers get credit for is you are also kind of like the the personality like counselor in mm-hmm. the room. So um, DJ Khaled is a great example of someone who like doesn't play any of the instruments. Yeah. He doesn't do any of the technical stuff. Um, but if you listen to interviews where he gets really serious about what he does as a, as a producer, yeah, he really recognize how intelligent and how like emotionally intelligent the dude is because he works with probably the top talents and top egos in the entire world. Absolutely, and for not being able to do any of the technical or any of the musical stuff still orchestrates this amazing music. Mm -hmm. If you're a DJ Khaled fan. Right. And I think that gives me even more respect for him because he doesn't have all of those skills, but he still is pulling that off. And so I think producers are seen as like the person that like makes the beat. Yeah. A lot of producers do that, but there's like way more hats that producers have to wear. Well, a good example is Diddy, you know, Diddy worked with like hit the uh, heat makers and that wasn't Diddy. Hit makers, mm. hit M A K A, not heat makers. That's yeah. a dipset one. Uh, he worked with the hit makers, and you know, he, a lot of he just like kind of orchestrated everything. He put everything together. It's almost like um, like being a director or like a general manager for a basketball team. Like you're yeah. kind of overseeing the whole process, but still, you have some kind of areas of expertise where you can be like, okay, put this here, put this here, and it all mesh together for sure. And on the business side of it, the, the basketball GM is a great metaphor for that because there's so many things that are so crucial to the success of Definitely. whatever that project or that team is that will never be known by the fans. Yep. It's all stuff that's behind the scenes. Um, and so the Diddies and the Khaleds and you know all those people that are in that producer role do stuff that even someone like me who's in the industry, I may never know how hard those guys worked to make that stuff happen. Definitely. It's a good, you brought up a good point too. You'll never know what it took to like, let's say get a somebody championship, right? Like I just saw a clip of uh Draymond. I think he had gotten his second technical or technical in one of the games really early, maybe late end of this late of the season, early playoffs. And you see, I believe his name is Bob Meyer. Who's a GM. He comes down, he pulls Draymond aside and he says something to him like, you know, chill out or whatever. And he immediately Draymond goes back into the huddle. He starts getting with the guys. You can see where that level of respect is, but that's something that a normal fan wouldn't see. There just happened to be a camera on him when it happened. Yeah. So it's pretty crazy. The reason why I asked if you thought you were like kind of a natural at it was because I think, especially with creatives, they think that the only way to be artistic is if you're natural. Like, oh, if I can't 
draw that well, it doesn't mean I'm going to get better. You know what I mean? So a lot of times people just quit trying to do things because they don't think that they're a natural at it. Mm-hmm. When in reality, you could it might lead to something completely different. Like DJ Khaled started as a DJ, an actual DJ. Now he's producing these hit records. He's a businessman. So yeah, just like on the creative side is a. Uh, not every person has to be natural. It can be, I guess, learned as well. Yeah. Well, I don't, I mean, that begs the question, like what makes someone a natural? Mm-hmm. I don't know if, I don't know if anyone is like re- really, truly like born with a talent. Like it has to come from somewhere, even yeah. if you're self-taught or if it's something that you figure out through your own life journey. Um, I think talent is, um, talent is a product of like hard work. Definitely. You know, people often say like, um, quality versus quantity in a lot of different things that we would talk about in life. But I think as an artist, I think quantity breeds quality. Yeah. So I think you have to do, and certainly in like sports and yeah, all, you know, and in business and all kinds of stuff, exactly. Rep- correct repetition is what is going to build a solid skill set. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's for sure true of anything in the entertainment business. Yeah. I think that there's a, you know, there's some people that when they just touch a microphone, they're naturally gifted at it. But I do, feel like for artists and even anybody that's in creative field, there has to be kind of a little bit of a, a learning curve because I think that's where you figure out your true artistry is when you're kind of going through that learning curve. What's, uh, what's your favorite thing about creating music as a, as a total? Like, is it a story that you're telling? Is it just to get out your uh, natural kind of uh, creative side? Like, what what is your favorite thing about making music? Um, the... I kind of have two answers to that. I think like selfishly it's, um, it's a really amazing, like emotional, intellectual, spiritual outlet. Definitely. Um, so I've, I've never been like a, like a diary person or, um, you know, story writer or not a journal writer, excuse Mm me. Um, but I think that's like creating music and especially music with lyrics is probably like the closest thing that I have to that is, it's kind of like this world that I like get to control and I get to output and, you know, lay my emotions and my thoughts out there however I want. And I don't necessarily have to show it to anyone else. Yeah, There's plenty true. of songs that I've written that I just like needed to say something and I'm not the kind of person that would rant about my personal life on social media or whatever. And so songwriting can be a great outlet for that. Yeah, for sure. Whether or not it becomes a publicly known song is, you know, situational. Um, but the second answer to that question is the ability to connect to people's mind and their emotion through art is always something that I've felt like I could do better than I can with words and conversation. Gotcha. Um, and I love connecting with people, but I'm not like the most extroverted or like social person. And so I really love that I have art to do that. Yeah. I like to call myself a, a introverted extrovert. I like being outside and amongst people. I just don't like really talking to them. Yeah. yeah Are weird. you the, uh, so you know this meme of like the person in the corner of the room with yeah. their arms folded who's like, they don't even know that I. Oh, at the party where you yeah. stay like, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I feel like that guy all the time. Yeah, so do I. I mean, it's it's kind of a weird feeling. It's like, I love being out and about. I just don't really want to be like in the mix. I kind of want to just be in the energy of it, but not be like the center of the energy. Yeah. Do you feel like social situations uh, like drain you or charge you up? Uh, these days now, maybe when I was younger, it charged me up because I was just like, yeah, let's go, let's party, let's do all that. But like going out now, it's just like, "Mm, maybe I do this for one night. And then after one night, I like pouring that kind of energy into traveling. I'm like, okay, let me save some of these nights for when I go out of town and then I could just have the best experience possible instead of only 
going out every weekend or something and then going out of town and then one day is just like, okay, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. I think maybe that's like comes with age. Definitely. I think we're around the same age, right? Yeah. Like early mid thirties. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that. And also the, as I get older too, with like work and just life in general, just having to be social, you have to be social in every aspect, you know, work, you have to email phone calls, you go to your family, you, you're social with your family, uh, social media plays a part in that. So it's like sometimes when I'm able to get like an hour of just quiet me time, like 2K, you know, an hour 2K, like that, those are the best times of my life. Yeah. And maybe I'm not picking up the phone during those times, but you know, let me just kind of just rock out and find some peace. Yeah. I think the phone and social media has definitely changed that as mm-hmm. well. I remember before, I mean, I had a cell phone when I was like in high school yeah, in the early the 2000s, I but I was like, never texted on that thing. It was mm-hmm. like to type a O you had to uh press like the number 6 like three times <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you yeah. know like before iPhones and all that shit. I just didn't use my phone a lot. I think it was like in case of emergencies or if I got stuck somewhere or if mom wanted to check in on me or whatever. Right. Um so I think that those social interactions were way more in person. Yep, definitely. I mean, we had like MySpace and Friendster and some early social media, but it was like not the same. Like I'm I'm for sure addicted to my phone now without mm-hmm. having tried to to do so. Yeah, I'm exactly. On Instagram and Facebook and Twitter all the time. Mm-hmm. I think I tell myself that I'm I do it because it's like uh for branding and yeah, to right. like, you know, announce like what's going on with my music career and all that kind of stuff. But I think really now I just like habitually just like pull reel it down to like check for updates and I'm like, ah, oh, no one commented yet. I'll check back and two minutes or something like that. So I think that probably plays in like the social drain and like the introversion is like the people that I would be excited to go out and do something with. I'd see them like every minute of every day. Exactly. Or I'm at least talking to them, you know, like the friends that I I hang out with pretty frequently. We talk a lot. Yeah. Are you on your phone a lot when you travel? Uh, No, I try not to be. I try to, besides like maybe taking videos and stuff and pictures, I try to stay off of it and just experience uh, what I'm doing, like I just went to Universal Studios a couple weeks ago. I just wanted to be there and be in the moment and the experience. So yeah, when it's something like that, yeah. But if I'm like just going downtown and I'm walking or something, you know, going from place to place, I'm, I'm probably looking at my phone just because I'm so used to Seattle or Tacoma or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. On your regular daily commute or whatever you have mm-hmm. driven past 38th Street a million times now. So what's right. happening today? Yeah. It's always interesting to think about what we used to do on the toilet before phones. Like we used to just Game Boy. The, you know what it used to be? It used to be Game Boy and magazines for me. Like yeah. I, we'd, I'd, I'd always take like a, uh, this is going to sound crazy, Slam magazine, but it's a basketball magazine yeah. for all the non-basketball people that are watching this. That probably sounds like a foreign magazine, but like Slam magazine or mm-hmm. something like that, Double XL, mm-hmm. and read it on the toilet. But it's crazy now, you just are on your phone the entire time. Totally. Man, I was just watching the um, Stefan Marbury documentary the other night, and they have like pulled up all these articles from early uh, from early in his career when he was like on the cover of Slam and all of that yeah. stuff. And I was like, man, that was like kind of a classic. I haven't read that magazine in a long time. Yeah. That whole era of the NBA and like all of that stuff. The whole media was different. And I think I really, um, it just was just so nostalgic, like watching those old players. He went to high school with like Kevin Garnett yep. and like all these legends and stuff. I think because of the age I was and looking back on all that stuff, I think I like really idolized basketball in a way bigger than, way than I do now. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm like, those are the best players of all time, which I don't think is necessarily true. I think I was just really impressionable watching basketball Definitely. at that age. Definitely. And during those days, 
when you didn't have social media and all you'd see is maybe some clips on SportsCenter, it made those players seem superhuman when you saw it. Yeah. Now you see everything about their lives. You see what they're wearing as they're walking in, when they're leaving, they're on TMZ. Like, mm-hmm. There's no more kind of mystique anymore because of social media. Yeah. But it's also cool to get a glimpse into their lives, too. You know, you don't get to see that kind of stuff too often. I, I mean, I could care less about, like, the TMZ stuff. But sometimes it's cool to see, like, a lot of these players are doing, like, uh, vlogs where, you know, they're taking you into the facility and that they're training and stuff. Like, that stuff's interesting because you get, a like, a perspective of how, what their lives look like. A lot of people just think they pick up a ball and go to the court, mm-hmm. get paid millions of dollars and go home. But they got families that they're juggling. They've got other things outside of sports that they want to do. So yeah. it's, it's always interesting to see that. I like the how many players have podcasts now and it's how so cool. open they are with their um, like actual like athletic experience and what's happening like X's and O's, what's happening with their team, breaking down plays. Um, I feel like people having access to like that information of like how these top players actually play basketball mm-hmm. is gonna breed if kids are into it, is going to breed like a generation of like super high athletic IQ. Yeah, for in the sure. Future. I think that's dope. And I think the other thing that's dope about um, all the social media surrounding athletes is think about, you know, there's what, 300 some players across the whole league. Yeah. Think about how many players you knew from our like younger eras of basketball who weren't on those sports centers clips and all of that stuff. That's true. There's probably 200 players that made it to the NBA. The top thing you can do as a basketball player and no one ever knew who they were. Yeah. Millionaires playing for the New York Knicks wouldn't recognize them on the street. Right. Maybe like a six man, seventh man, but getting paid five, six million a year. Yeah. Would never know who they are. They walk right past, you know, wouldn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think anyone who's achieved that, deserves to have their little piece of being a celebrity. And I think nowadays through social media, they do, which is dope. And artists have that too. And that's an interesting thing. How many people have a million followers on Instagram? You have no idea who they are. Yeah, right. There's so so many I click on and I'm like thinking this is, this person's going to have like 10, 15,000 and it's like 152,000. I'm like, I don't even know who this person is. Who the fuck is Aiden Ross? Yeah. (laughs) I obviously know who that is. So you know what I mean? Like, those kind of kids, I have no idea. I'm not tapped into that kind of those kind of things. So when I'm seeing these kids with like two, three, four million followers, like I just found out who Mr. Beast was like a year ago. Yeah, he snuck up on me too. Yeah. And he's got like 23 million subscribers or something like that. And yeah, some crazy. Yeah, he's getting a lot of flack right now for which I don't understand because I I feel like his whole uh, thing it, it, with his channel is that he like gives money to yeah. people who need money and who need support. And people are like hating on him for some reason right now. I think now, people but. just hate seeing other people do the things that they wish they could. They're like, oh, I wish I could be that generous, but I can't because I'm for not sure. Mr. Beast. It's easy to be a hater, bro. It is. It Actually, you know what? Being a hater is a full-time job these days. Like, <laughs> I see people that wake up, go straight to Twitter, are haters, and they go to bed haters. It's like, yeah. man, that's – why? How could you be I, – I don't understand being in that energy all the time. I don't either, but I've heard from a lot of people who are more successful than me that you can't – be successful without having haters. That's like a sign of becoming successful. That's true. Not everyone's going to love what you do, but everyone's going to have access to say something about it. That's very true. That is very true. Yeah. It's got to suck though. I'm, I'm sensitive. I take that stuff like seriously. If someone's like, your music sucks. I'm like, well, why do you think that? Yeah, exactly. I should just be like, well, it's not for you then turn it off. Leave me alone. (laughs) I think that's kind of like the difference between, um, athletes and artists too. Is that when you critique an artist, it's like, damn, I had to make this 
from beginning to end. Whereas like a basketball player, it's like, oh, I could have one shitty game, but then I could go out and have a completely different game the next one. Like, and people will still check for me. You make one bad song or a couple bad songs, and that might be it for you. Yeah. And it's, I think it's way harder to come back as an entertainer because those bad Definitely. moments live in infamy. And what do they say in sports? Like, it's always about the next play, not the yeah, last exactly. one. And so, that's very true. There's so many metaphors between sports and, and arts that are like, uh, very like close and crossover, but they're really like super different things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are synonymous, but there is definitely two different experiences. Um, I want to ask you about picking up new skills as a creative because, yeah. uh, you know, paying attention to your Instagram and things lately and we'll get more into it as we get into the EP, but I've noticed you're, you're trying a lot of new things that you wouldn't normally do like, um, the, the light setup and things like that. So talk about, learning new things as a creative and how that's kind of helped you evolve like as an all around better artist. Yeah. I think that there's, there's two kind of um, kinds of lanes of ways that I try to always be evolving. So like on the creative side, um, lyricism and improving myself as a vocalist has been like a big focus for the last two, three, maybe four years. Um, I've always done a little bit of singing in bands and stuff like that, but it's been more on like the punk or the rock and roll side of things. And I really wanted to tap into um, like rapping and emceeing and and being able to do that at a higher level, not just in terms of like how your voice sounds, but as a lyricist, I think it's, I think rap music is one of the hardest styles of music to have good lyrics. Um, And it's a very subjective thing. You could be an artist like who's, you know, like a DaBaby type who's like making music for a strip club. And there yeah. is things that are going to be good or bad in that situation. There's also, you could be like an Aesop rock type, someone more in like the intellectual or the underground side. And it's way more about like how clever and ingenious can I say this thing that I'm trying to say Definitely. or how many layers, um, you know, if you listen to it two or three times, how does that second or third listen give you something more than the first listen did. So that's been a big focus for me, um, writing better lyrics, being a better vocal performer, better singer and a rapper on the creative side. Then on the technical, on the production side, a lot of what I've done for like my day job work as an engineer has been in live sound for concerts, like mm-hmm. a sound guy at a bunch of the theaters and a bunch of the big venues in Seattle and Tacoma, ran sound at Capitol Hill block party for a couple years, oh, stuff cool. like that. Um, and so seeing what the top artists do on those stages is like super inspiring to me because there's all these things that aren't the music that really elevates the music. Yeah. Um, Zhu, Z H U. If you're familiar with them. I'm very, uh, yeah, very familiar. I saw, um, a couple years ago, I went to a show in Seattle that he played, at the Paramount Theater. Okay. Sold out show, you know, 3,600 people, however many fit in there. And so it's a vibe when you're in a packed room with someone who's that talented of a performer. Um, He had uh, really, really amazing lights that, um, like the coloring and the motion of the lights and the timing of when things were happening with the lights was like very musical. And that was a big takeaway because designing lights, there's like a visual arts aspect to it yeah definitely. but the actual process of it is like very technical you're like coding things on a computer and you're like programming this like machine that is a light to move or to be bright or what color to be and all that stuff so it's kind of like 
marries the like creative and the technical minds mm-hmm. that I like had a little bit of both of those sides. Um, and then the other thing, technical and production wise, that I've been really, really inspired by, um, that I've seen through the EDM festivals that have been a big part of the last couple years is the visual component. Yes. So like big video screens or projections on stage. Yeah. Definitely. And how can um, a visual thing um, either like enhance or add like an extra dimension or add extra context to what's happening definitely. musically. So I'm new to relatively new to like Adobe Premiere and all of the video editing stuff. And I'm, I'm getting pretty decent with like camera work now, but I'm relatively new to that. I've only owned a pro camera for maybe like four years now mm-hmm. or something like that. But I've taken a lot of passion and a lot of pride in getting better at that because the artists that I've seen on stage um, that have done that at a really high level, it's been like totally mind blowing how it just really elevates the concert experience. Yeah. And so adding those things, um, the video and the lighting, and then adding other art forms, um, like a painting, having someone painting on stage and having someone dancing on stage. Yeah. Um, those have been like big inspirations for me that I've seen other artists do. And so I'm working really hard to incorporate that into my shows. Yeah. I will say one thing that I felt, especially about, um, like just seeing as, as you're creating this, you know, through Instagram and social media and stuff, I feel like you're creating like a little universe with everything. You know, that's really cool. It's, it's like everything has its purpose around what the music is instead of just like trying to just shoot random videos or just, you know, doing just. The bare minimum, hoping for the maximum. Like you're, re- I feel like you're really telling a story with this. Yeah, I think it's really dope. It's been, it's been probably five months of video and like lighting and um, like sound development for this concert. So yeah. I got back from uh, I was on tour in Europe last yep. November. Got home right at the end of November and pretty much just went straight to work. I put made a list of all the songs that I had written and all the songs that I was like almost finished writing had already kind of started working on this new EP sequenced all the music together to make like the listening experience as good as it can be first and foremost. Yes. And then started working through the theme. So like, what is this song about? And if I was going to make a movie about this song, what is like the opening shot going to be? What's yeah. the location that we're in? That's cool. And things like that. I listened to, um, Jason Bateman's podcast a lot. He's okay. like the director from Ozark. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really talented director. Um, uh, what was the uh, Arrested Development? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that show's so good. That's a, that's a top tier show. He's got a, a podcast about Ozark where they talk a lot about the production. Okay. And he has a podcast called Smartless with um, with Will Arnett, who was also on Arrested yeah. Development, and with Sean Hayes from Will and Grace. Okay. And it's very like comedic podcast, but they all are also in like the production side of filmmaking. So they like, and then they interview like other actors and other, other directors. So inevitably they get into like talking about lighting and talking about cool. camera work and all this stuff. And so having listened to and looked up to those guys, I don't have like a film background at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like watching movies, especially like really cinematic yeah. movies. Mad Max is like one of my yeah, favorites. The look crazy. of that is yeah. awesome. And, um, you know, just other stuff that's like super artsy, A24, pretty much every one of yeah. their movies looks absolutely incredible. They do some amazing work. For people that don't know, they did like Uncut Gems and they mm-hmm. did, um, what was Midsummer. One that, did they do? Um, uh, the Menu, I think, was them too, most yeah. recently. And they did Everything Everywhere All at Once, right? Yeah. That yeah, which is crazy. crazy yeah. Man. So 
just not that I'm anywhere near being on that level as like a filmmaker. I draw a lot of inspiration from that stuff and try to study YouTube tutorials and listening yeah. to those guys podcast and any little bit of information on like what their creative process is with the filmmaking stuff. I tried to pull some of that like cinematic feel into the stage visuals. Yeah. So it's like 65 minutes of video that I edited for this concert. Wow. And, um, took me a long time to do it but it looks really good i'm super proud of how it turned out that's awesome yeah so that like just like what i asked you earlier about going back to uh learning new things as a creative um you're talking about how you've been spending time listening to podcasts watching mm-hmm. these interviews watching how to film edit all that kind of thing i think that that's one part that gets missed of people being creative is that you have to constantly learn new things and the great thing about technology these days is we're able to go on a youtube and watch a tutorial and be like oh, okay I see how that's made, and also I see the steps that it took to get there. Because people see the finished product and they're like, I don't know how to do that. And then you start seeing the steps through everything, and it's like, oh, okay, I have this basic general knowledge of this. Now I can apply that to this and kind of twist it in my own way. Yeah, and I think that uh, is one of the dopest parts about like the current era that Hell we get yeah. to be alive in right now is how much of that information is out there. Hell yeah. Think about like um, – in like the seventies and the, or the eighties, like you had to either go to school for that. If yeah. there was a school that taught that in that era, or you had to work for someone who knew it. And it was like a totally different path to get to know that knowledge. Yeah. Even you take the technology in those days, like it's so much easier to record music now than it was back then. You know, you make it really easy. You can literally go buy a microphone, put it into your laptop and you could upload a song to SoundCloud that night. And who knows? Just might just go. Yeah. You never know. But as the barrier to entry gets lower, more yeah. people have access to it. The sure. um, the threshold for what's considered high quality gets higher. You know what I mean? Definitely. So like if anyone can make a trap beat on FL Studio and anyone can turn auto tune on, then like is that really considered high quality anymore? Yeah. Or is that just like the baseline? Yeah. And so and yeah, there's I pros guess and cons. yeah, there's definitely yeah. The more people that get into it, the more kind of muddies the waters of what's actual talent. And what's just kind of plug and play. Yeah. Definitely. Going back to what you were saying about visuals, though, um, I will say one of the greatest experiences I ever had was I was at uh, Paradiso and Porter Robinson. and he's awesome. Anime, the lights, everything. It was insane. I've never seen anything like that before, but it was literally like watching a movie, but having the soundtrack to the movie be the only thing. Like there wasn't much dialogue in his video. It was just like watching a movie with no dialogue and it was insane plus you know obviously that setting is beautiful so yeah totally i haven't seen him uh seen his like show in person i've seen like clips of it Mm -hmm. especially when everyone was like live streaming a couple years ago yeah saw a bunch of his live streams and the art was amazing but i've heard from people that have gone to those concerts that they're like it's like the most like emotionally like overwhelming experience and like people are like crying on the dance floor because it's like this beautiful i'm gonna be honest with you like it was that beautiful it was like man this is it was it was just weird. It's just a, such a weird feeling. Yeah, that's I mean, but that's like the dope thing that art can do with no words, no conversation can like make someone feel something that profound. It's like pretty cool, man. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, let's get into, let's stay on the tech side a little bit. What do you think about this like wave of AI music that's coming out now? It seems like there's a lot of people against it. But do you first off, what are your thoughts on it? And then second, do you think that it can actually help creatives? Yeah. I think I'm really excited about it personally. Awesome. I'm, I don't feel like it's going to take anyone's job. 
I feel like if you think it's going to take your job, you probably already <laughs> suck at your job because <laughs> all of these tools are pretty much freely available, at least in like their beta phases. If you're um, intuitive enough to sign up for like the testing period yep. of like a chat GPT or Dolly and Midjourney or like the image generator ones. Yeah. And I know there's probably a lot of other apps that I'm not even like totally hip to yet because it's all happening very, very fast. But the way that I see it is if like you're smart enough to know how to do the thing that this AI app is doing, then you should be smart enough to get paid and make a computer do the work for you. Yeah, definitely. That's as like a, a person who works in for other artists in like a creative, like a studio setting. That's what I'm excited about. Um, tuning vocals and editing vocal recordings is one of the most tedious parts of being a studio producer. I bet you got to make sure even with an amazing singer, you're going to have to fix some of those sour notes. You're going to have to fix the timing. A harmony might be, you know, a half second late or, you know, whatever. So you got to go through and make sure those things are absolutely perfect because that's the standard of recordings has to sound perfect. Yes. If I can charge for those five hours that it takes me to do that, but I can have a computer spend those five hours doing it and I can be working on a different task while that's happening, then I'm making more money in less amount of time. You don't want to talk. Yeah, we can bleep that part out. <laughs> um, but that's, um, I think someone's walking up to the door right now. Oh, it's important to understand that there's two different kinds of AI. Yep. And I think people hear AI and they think of like Jarvis from Iron Man, yeah, this like computer true. that can do everything and cook your dinner for you and blah, blah, blah. So that's like general AI, right? Like an AI device that could do anything. That's not real yet. We don't have it. It might be real someday, but all we have available to us now is what's called narrow AI. You probably already are familiar with these mm. terms, but it's like basically an app that's really good at like doing one thing, and it's like not connected to the rest of the world. Right. Even if it's like an internet-based app, it still is like only lives on this one server, and its job is to like talk to you, or its job is to like generate an image for you. So. When we think about AI in terms of like Skynet, like Terminator, yeah, that's yeah, going like to take over the that, world. Yeah. That's I don't think we're near that yet. We're all just have these like very narrow, like one task um, apps, like Chat GPT and that kind of stuff. Narrow AI is dope because that's the thing that's going to save us time if you know how to use it. Definitely. And that's going to thing you know that's going to make people that are smart enough to incorporate it into their existing workflows going to make your job easier make more money, not have to work as hard, like all those kind of things. And so I think it's dope. As a creative, I don't think it's quite there yet. It can't, in music at least, it can't Definitely. do like nearly any of the things that I'm good at yet, yeah. but I think it will soon. One thing that I'm really excited about is the um, voice matching or the like voice generating AI. Oh, don't tell me you're going to put a fake Drake feature on your EP. Dude, I have... <laughs> it's... <laughs> I have a song with like a fake Rick Ross voice on oh, it. Sick. It's it, I haven't released it yet, but I've been like playing it in some of my DJ sets. Yeah, and it, I would say like seven out of ten, like actually sounds like Rick Ross. Oh, interesting. And I can't afford his feature. You mean uh, Mick Frost? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah he's totally. Randy uh, Rossland. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, uh, and I can't remember the name of the artist, but there was an artist on um, Twitter who said that his his record deal, his contract for his record deal was up. And he said, if anyone through AI can create a song, like a hit song using like an AI generated version of my voice, 
Um, I'll split the royalties with you 50-50. Yeah. I have no contractual agreement. Anyone can try this. Just release it and put my name on it. And if it's a hit, we'll split the money. And if it sucks, I'm going to ask you to take it down. Yeah, and I thought fair. that that was like pretty like revolutionary stance to have. Definitely. Because I don't think anyone up until now, I don't think very many people, like I don't think Drake would be like, yeah, use my likeness. No problem. Yeah. So I think that maybe people's attitudes are changing a little bit. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves. There was a rumor circulating that those Drake uh, AI songs that leaked were actually songs that he did. And that he's trying to test the waters on where people, what people want to hear from him next. Honestly, if that is the case, I don't believe it to be the case. But if that was something that an artist did, it's genius because then you understand where, where, what people are going to expect out of your sound next and what they want to hear. Yeah. But a lot of them already sound the same as what he's making now. It's just got a little bit of a different, you know, just change to it. It still sounds the same. Mm-hmm. So. Drake is funny for that. Um, for this conversation, because he's famously in the production world known as like one take Drake. Like yeah. he'll, he'll come in and record one pass through the song, and he's like, and now it's up to you to make it sound good because I'm going to leave. Yeah. So now he's no take Drake. Yep. And that's why uh, 40 is so instrumental in his career. It's being able to put that to like we were talking about the producer thing earlier with the DJ Khaled, the Diddy's, like the 40s do that for him. Yeah. So it, I don't just think it takes a collective. I think music is a collective thing. Like, Maybe writing your own bar should be your own thing, but I don't think that necessarily getting like a bar or something from somebody else is the biggest thing in the world. Like, like you were saying, you want the you want what is comes best from the music. Like you want the best possible music to be made. Yeah. So if it's maybe incorporating a line that somebody else does, I I don't care as a consumer though. But I can see how as an artist that might be different. I think there's there's two viewpoints there because. People who work in the industry have known that um, like ghostwriting or yeah. uncredited writers has been a part of music making for decades. Right. I mean, since like like the 30s and 40s, like um, Led Zeppelin famously like didn't write like almost any of their songs. They were written by other blues artists and they just mm-hmm. re-recorded them and got famous off of that. Elvis famously re-recorded versions of loads of other songwriters and his version was the famous one. Right. right? So kind of apples and oranges there. Um, I don't think that they were necessarily hiding that. I think that maybe just people didn't know because all the information wasn't as easily available. Right. But back to my point, I think that if you are someone who works in the industry and you know that that happens, you don't get to have an offended opinion because you are part of like what makes that machine work. You know what I mean? I think as soon as it becomes known by the consumer like the layman music fan. And as soon as it's that affects their fandom or their listening experience, then I think it's a problem. Yeah, that's true. But I, you know, there's so many, I feel like there's so many artists out there that have people write for them or at least contribute to the studio that you never guess. But maybe that song became 10 times greater because that person added that little bar or something like that. Yeah. You know, so, but going back to the AI thing, why I think it might be good for creatives is sometimes when you're thinking of something in your head, it's hard to, to like push that out into reality. So something like a, a chat GPT, right? If you're trying to come up with a story or something, you could put as little information in there and it might be able to give you ideas as to what you can use as part of yours. Yeah. You know, even like with art, like there you see something in your mind, but you're not able to maybe illustrate that the best. Like something like a, a AI generated thing might be able to 
demonstrate that better than I ever could. Sure. I think it's it's dope to get a free first draft of whatever you're working on. That's true. Um, yeah. That's what I love about ChatGPT. So I did, I had to um, write, I'm like fully independent. I don't have a label or a management behind me. So I have to do my own contracts and like write my own like PR emails and all this kind of stuff. And that's not something that I'm like very skilled at yet. Mm-hmm. So to be able to type like, hey, write a PR to a radio station for a new album that's coming out and it can write me a couple paragraphs yeah, and then I can go through and, you know, fix it up from there and put my own spin on it and stuff. On it. That's um, dope. I don't know how to write contracts. I don't know legal jargon. So for it to be able to take like my 10 bullet points and turn that into like proper sounding contract, yeah. that's awesome. The problem with the creative stuff is that it's not generating new ideas is drawing on pre-existing ideas. That's true. So, for someone who's maybe like writing a screenplay and they're using chat GPT to write dialogue or to write, you know, something that's happening in the scene, technically that is derivative of something else that it found on the internet. Right. The image generator ones have had a lot of backlash from artists who have recognized Absolutely. their artwork and how it's influenced um, what this app has been pulling from, from like creative designs. And they're like, okay, sh- sure, it's like a computer-generated thing, but the information that was fed to the computer is my intellectual property, uh, so it's not an original idea. It's technically ripping my idea off. So that's where this kind of weird gray area yeah, comes sure. from. And it it's a factor of either that it's not good enough at creating new versions of what it's what's being fed to it, A, or B, not enough information has been fed to it yet. Yeah, for sure. Do you ever see that ever being a, a legal situation? Like we're seeing even now, like with the Marvin Gaye and Ed Sheeran yeah. uh, lawsuit, you know, they're, they're claiming that the melody, and I don't even, it wasn't even the family, correct? It was like the producers or something that worked with them? I can't remember, but yeah, I, I read that um, it was very similar to the lawsuit that um, Mark Ronson lost a couple years ago. But I'm sorry, continue though. No, 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 that was my thought was, yeah, um, do you do you think that that's going to end up being like a kind of legally sticky sticky in the future? Like somebody's like that clearly is a, a not like a rip off, but it was clearly influenced by my art. Do you think that that might be something that's kind of sways people from using AI? Also, I think it's definitely um, it's definitely something that's unfortunate that I don't think was anticipated, and I think that um, there's a couple of possible solutions. Is like. There needs to be an opt-in or an opt-out method for like what these AI um, bots or servers or like well, I don't know the correct term. What, yeah. What the what these things are are allowed to pull influence from. So, and when it comes to intellectual property of like a painting or a photograph or like a sound recording or something, there's this thing called Creative Commons. You've probably yeah. heard this term before, where the person that created this recording or this art piece or whatever can attribute it to public use. And right. so they can like put this little disclaimer on their thing that basically says you can use this for the following purposes of like education or use in um, reproduction or whatever. And then there's um, all rights reserved. And there's a couple steps in between that, which are like, you can use it for this, but not that right. or whatever. Right. So I think that we need to have some specification with these AI apps of like, are they just taking from all information and all images of everything that's on the internet? 
Or are they actually properly only taking creative commons and publicly attributed works into yeah, that's a good point. what they're recreating? That's a really good point. Because like um, the intellectual property laws behind a photographer, for example, as soon as you take a photo, you own that photo. And it doesn't matter who you took the photo of, if you had mm-hmm. permission to take it or not. Like That's just the law in this country. You own your photos as soon as you snap the pic. Right. Sound recordings are a little more nuanced. Paintings, I don't know off the top of my head, but there are these different rules for all these different mediums. But um, visual arts, at least, if it's a painting, photograph, you know, like whatever different art forms, all of these show up on Google image search all the same. And so Dolly or Midjourney or whatever other apps that are doing image generation probably don't know the difference through its like automated data collection, what type of image it is, yeah, and true. what the law surrounding that image is. Mm-hmm. So, like, we need to have—I don't want to say like we need to really tightly regulate this because that can inhibit like the growth and the evolution of yeah. it. Um, but we definitely need to have like a better understanding of like what it's doing and who it's maybe harming. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's probably why people are so scared of it now is because we—it's something new that we don't really understand. Like even the internet, when the internet was brand new to people, like people were like, "What? You go on this on your computer and you can just look up whatever. You can do whatever. People have websites. You can shop on this. Like it's kind of like that. We're just not. We don't know what the future of it is. So it seems scary right now because it's like, oh, it's this new technology. And then you put the Terminator stuff in there. You know, we've been kind of conditioned to believe that AI is going to be the destruction of everybody. Yeah, man. Part of me. Part of me just wants to be like, none of that is real. Like that's a Terminator's like a movie, <laughs> and like, hey man, hey. One, yeah, I know that's one very extreme example. But the other part of me is like, well, pretty much every Black Mirror episode has come to life. That's so, true. So that's maybe like true. we should be more scared than we are. Yeah, definitely, definitely. One of the things I feel like that these AI generated songs are lacking a lot is the actual songwriting piece of it. Like you said, it does feel very, at least from the songs I've heard, it feels very generic. Yeah. So talk about like your songwriting process. Like how when how do you come up with the ideas for the, what you want to write about? Because I actually, let me take it back for a second. I tried to find the tweet, but I couldn't. But you had tweeted a couple months ago about a particular song that you were working on that had to do with um, somebody from, was it your homeland that skied? Yeah. Okay, talk a little bit about that and how that idea came. Um, that's an interesting for a, a hip hop song. It is. Yeah. That, that was like a very, um, very unique, like songwriting approach for me. Um, a lot of times, like, because I'm also a producer and a beat maker, a lot of times that's where my songwriting starts is like on the instrumental portion mm-hmm. of the music. Sometimes I'll have a theme or a lyric or a cool, you know, hook will come to mind and that can be like the spark, um, creatively of like how the song's going to come to life thematically. But in that case, I was it, it was early when I was working on my new EP and I had this idea that I was going to do this kind of like n- this Nordic heritage element to it, like the music that my grandmother um, grew up playing for me. And so I was thinking about all the stuff that I remember from um, doing like Norwegian related stuff as a kid, visiting there um, with my mom and with my uh, family when I was younger just all of the stuff Norway related. Like, how was, how was I going to incorporate this? And I remembered watching 
1994, watching the Winter Olympics, which was in Lillehammer in Norway that year with my grandpa. And I remember watching um, the ski jumpers who were like flying like two to 300 feet through the air and then like landing gracefully on skis. And I was like, I was like, maybe there's like a cool metaphor there or like something, I don't know, like flying or, you know, whatever, who knows. So I started going into researching this and watching all these old clips from the 94 Winter Olympics and just started feeling really nostalgic and kind of remembering watching some of that on TV. And the dude that won gold in um, ski jumping that year, his name is Espen Bredesen. And he's... um, He's like kind of this like uh, legendary athlete in Norway, probably not known like globally necessarily, but um, won the gold in his home country in front of like front of like forty thousand of his countrymen, which mm-hmm. is like pretty dope. And so I was like going through and researching this guy, and they were like, "This was the era in ski jumping." This video that I was watching, this is the era in ski jumping where they um, early adopters were like changing the technique. And it used to be this like your knees locked together and your feet offset and your skis straight. Okay. And in that era in the early 90s, they started doing this like V style where they would like spread yeah. their legs out to try to create more like, I don't know, wind resistance Airflow or, or something. Something, yeah. something that made them like potentially sail further or stay in the air longer or whatever. He was one of the early adopters of this. Okay. And all these pro ski jumpers were like, no, nah, we're not going to do it tradition and we've done it this way for hundreds of years and whatever and he was like nah fuck that i'm gonna do this new thing and it was a couple years in competition before that winter olympics he like went and did this thing and it totally flopped and he got last place in competition and he got like this nasty like nickname and like everyone's making fun of him and he was like really humiliated and but he stuck with it and like trained his ass off and came back in the Winter Olympics having mastered this technique and then won the gold. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, such a random thing, especially in like a rap song. Yeah, for but sure. Remembering watching this as a kid with my grandparents and just hearing this story, this dude's like, uh, you know, total like comeback story and winning the gold medal in his home country, just felt like super inspired by this. And so I was like, I'm gonna use this. Um, imagery and like all of this kind of stuff as like metaphor for like don't give up and like even if you are like the worst at what you do you can still become the best yeah and so that ended up becoming like the centerpiece of one of the songs really cool see i like stuff like that where it's there's so much more substance to it right like you you actually have to 
even when you go to write it, like you have to keep with the theme also, but also make it interesting. So it's just songwriting has always been so interesting to me because it's when people start making music, it's like what inspired that music? You know, what made you decide you wanted to speak on this? And I think it's cool. You're tying it in with the Norway. You're tying it in with your childhood. Like that's just such a unique uh, story built around your EP. Yeah. I think that, I think for anyone who is a songwriter doing anything creative, I think if you pull from your own experience and you do it um, really authentically and you do it really confidently, I think that even if it, if the subject matter isn't like directly relatable to someone that watches it, I right. think people can still latch onto that authenticity and um, that confidence and it will mean something to a listener or a viewer if they think that the person that created it is like really being truthful and like really being meaningful with it. That's my hope anyways. Yeah. So when you start a new project like this one, you're currently, are you, or is it finished? Or are you still currently working on it? It's everything's finished and it's ready for release in a couple of weeks. Okay. So for, well, let's start with what's the, what's the name of the project? The project is called Nordwest. Nordwest. Is there any particular Norway, Northwest? Yeah. Okay. No, nor, uh, yeah. Norway or Nordic and Northwest. Okay. Um, when I, uh, my grandpa and no, just my grandfather's side of the family grew up in the northwestern region of Norway. As oh well. man, there's, so there's, there's like layers a northwest to this. To northwest connection. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So, cover art. I have to ask. You have what appears to be a goat. Yeah, playing a violin. How did this come about? This is like um, this is like old Scandinavian folk tales. Okay. Um, in um, in Scandinavian culture. They have this instrument. It's actually the national instrument of Norway. It's called the Hardanger fiddle. And I own one of them, but it's actually not here right now. A friend of mine is is borrowing it. Otherwise, I would show it to you. But it's like this it's, – it's a violin. It looks like a violin, but it's like ornately um, decorated with like pearl inlays and um, this style of painting called rose mauling, which is like this kind of cursive rose petal oh, looking thing. It looks like a like tattoos or something almost. Um, and then the head – the headstock um, where you would like tune the instrument, they're traditionally um, hand carved in the shape of like a dragon's head wearing a crown. So it's this crazy looking instrument. Um, It has four strings on the top, like a violin does. And then underneath that, it has four or five strings that like resonate when you play the top ones. Oh, interesting. So it's this really old instrument. It's like hundreds of years old that they've been playing it. But, um, Back in the day in Norway, it was considered like the devil's instrument because it played, it harmonized with itself. Oh, people were like, "What is this haunting tone? And why am I hearing two instruments when I'm only seeing one?" Yeah. And so, in the folk tales um, in Norway, like the devil played this instrument, oh, and he held the violin backwards when he played it. And so, you see in all these like children's books and folk tales and stuff that have drawings, there's like a devil which is often like a horned yeah. devil or like a goat looking devil. And he's like playing. I'm not going to lie instrument. to you. When I first saw this, I thought you joined the Illuminati and didn't tell me <laughs> like this looked like some, you know, eyes wide shut. Totally. It looks kind of like some death metal artwork or something. Maybe. Too. Yeah. Definitely. Um, it's it's but, really cool though. I mean, I love how everything ties in together. You know, yeah. everything that you're doing with this project ties in together. So when you start a new project, is there, do you have a theme going into it or is it just kind of evolve as you're starting to make the music? Like what did you have this theme specifically and said, this is exactly what I'm going to write about. This is going to make the artwork about. 
I did on this one. I had this idea for incorporating like the Norwegian folk music elements before I even started it. So I actually went through my mom's old like CD and record collection, some of which was like handed down from grandma. Nice. And found some of these random old Norwegian CDs and, and vinyl records and just went on like a sampling spree because I knew it was going to be kind of like hip hop or EDM at its core. Mm-hmm. It ended up being a little bit of both. And so I knew I was going to record some original stuff because I play a lot of that music. Grew up playing violin and I, ha- I own a hardanger fiddle and play it a little bit. Um, and then I also knew like sampling, of course, is like a big part of making hip hop music. And so I was like, it's going to be something like that. And, um, so I just kind of started going through and finding a bunch of little clips that I liked, wrote a bunch of music and then narrowed it down to like the three best beats, um, that I really, really feel felt like I was super proud of this and a, a hip hop fan would enjoy this an EDM fan would enjoy this. And also it has this like, um, Norwegian element, so like my mom might actually get into it. She doesn't yeah. like hip hop or EDM, yeah. but she loves all the Norwegian shit. So yeah, cool. How hard was it to to limit yourself to just three songs? Was it? Did you intend for it to be longer? Or I didn't know. I didn't necessarily know how many songs it was going to be. Um, I probably wrote like seven or eight beats, and I think that um, I think that four or five of them were like really really good. Um, but as I started putting lyrics together and started like taking these from being just beats to being like whole songs, it was really like the three that ended up on this EP that I felt like they musically they fit together. Lyrically, they're all like at the quality of being like intelligent and catchy and all of that stuff. Um, and then it has like that kind of common thread between like the story between the three of them that I felt like they fit in the same universe. Okay. And some of the other ones felt maybe a little bit outliers in terms of like the quality or like the subject matter wasn't like a total fit. And so there's, there was a fourth song that like narrowly missed the cut, um, that I'm actually performing live on this tour. Um, but it'll probably end up being on a future record someday. Wait, so I didn't even ask, did, did the skiing record make it? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, okay. You know, I didn't know. Uh, Man, that's awesome. So, yeah, it seems like you're building a whole theme around this. Now, let's talk about, uh, well, first about the videos. The videos look insane. Uh, I was getting uh, Night King vibes from the, so is is that an alternate cover that you use? I know you had mentioned that that is your your girlfriend, right? Yes. So we, we're. um, And there'll be a picture on this that shows. Yeah, that was, um that was originally going to be the like main artistic, uh, like aesthetic for the whole project. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I ended up through like doing more designs for like merch drops and like other promotional material ended up on this cover art that we use for the EP. And so in, um, using some little like industry lingo and you're probably familiar with these terms as well. You often, before an album or an EP comes out, you lead with what's called a single, which is like, Usually like the, the biggest or the catchiest song or it has like a feature of like a big artist that everyone would know. And so the um, that kind of like Game of Thrones, uh, White Walker looking yeah. artwork thing ended up being the um, visual piece for the music video of a song called Froze and ended up being the um, artwork for the poster for the tour. And since we're leading with that song Froze, it just kind of made sense. Like maybe we'll separate this artwork just as like the single artwork. Okay. Um, and that um, is, it's actually not very like photoshopped. It's like real practical makeup effects that we yeah, did for the music Yeah, I remember you telling me about video. this before, yeah. 
super stoked. We hired a, a friend of a friend, this girl named Lizette, who is an awesome um, makeup designer. She did like her bachelor's and master's degree in like theater and practical makeup effects oh, and cool. all this stuff. So she came here to the studio one day, like an hour and a half of makeup prep before we like filmed this scene for the video was, and we had got these like white contacts and like all this crazy looking stuff and um, filmed the video um, which, yeah, just ended up being like a really big centerpiece. It's in like the stage visuals and everything too, but yeah. we just felt like the the look of that didn't really encompass the feel of the whole project, but okay. it very much encompassed the feel of that song. So that's why we kind of narrowed it down to that project. Yeah, I mean, everything I've seen from it looks super cool. Um, I want to ask you, since this project seems really personal to you, did you ever think of working with anybody outside of just yourself? I kind of I ended up involving and incorporating like quite a few friends okay. and um, some cool people. I've got two features that I'm really stoked about on this EP, but I originally wanted to have it just be me. Um, so I I've toured um, quite a bit the past couple years as a like an MC and a vocalist. Where as years prior to that, I've just been a DJ on right. tour. And so what I realized is that. Um, as a DJ, you almost like always have features. Like if yeah. you're working with a rapper and you're not a rapper, but you're a producer, then it's going to be your song featuring so-and-so. Right. right? And um, so as that kind of evolved, I started like getting on the mic in the studio and it would be like me and um, Nuri's is a friend of mine yeah. from Hawaii or me and Caleb Germain is a friend of mine from Los Angeles. We did a track together. Um, Vicky Martinez is another person I've collaborated with. It's really, really cool from a marketing standpoint and getting to work with your friends to have all these features. But then I realized as I was taking these songs out on tour, I was like, I have to cut half the song out because that person's not here. Yeah. And so I'm like doing all these like one verse versions of these songs. They're still really cool songs and I, I don't regret the process at all. But I was like, I need to have, if I'm going to be a vocalist and be known as someone who's now also rapping and singing, I need to have some songs where like I'm do performing the whole song. Right. That makes so sense. that was kind of the thought, um, the thought with this EP and I am the only vocalist on all three of these songs. Okay. So I am performing the whole thing, but I ended up incorporating some other people. Um, the leading single froze, um, has DJ abilities doing the turntable scratching on nice. the end of the song. So, um, underground cool. hip hop fans will know idea and abilities. They were like a really popular group. The late great idea is no longer with us, but his DJ abilities um, is still touring and and making awesome music as a solo artist. Um, Randomly uh, got asked to support him on a couple dates here in the Northwest. He crashed in the guest room at the studio um, after one of the shows and we were just showing each other some records and I showed him an early version of that song. And I was like, what does this need? And he goes, it needs something on the end of it. And um, we had just been listening to Run the Jewels, oh, Ooh nice. La La with DJ Premier yeah, scratching yeah, at the yeah. end of it. And I was like, yeah, man, I feel like I need like my DJ Premier on this song or something. And he looked at me and he was like, well, dude, yeah, I'm right, I'm here, right here. I'm on your couch right now. Yeah, <laughs> man. And he's so good at like scratching. He was like a um, like a DMC finalist, like the World DJ Championships. Oh, okay. Um, cool. He was a finalist for the USA division of that two years in a row, I think, Damn. and um, super talented at all of that stuff. And anyone who's into underground hip hop knows him as just being like the guy. Yeah. So um, when he was like, well, dude, you should let me scratch on this. I was like, well, I can't say no to that. You're right. amazing. You're awesome. And um, so, yeah, he he was the feature 
um, on the single. Some um, retro clips of him from those DJ competitions make like a guest appearance at the end of the video. We scratched the video as he's like scratching the turntable part, which is kind of cool. That video comes out pretty soon. So you get to check that out. Um, And then on the song that inspired this album artwork with this like goat devil guy playing the violin, (laughs) that song features that hardung or fiddle instrument I was telling you about. I play it, but it's a really hard instrument to play. Mm -hmm. I'm not an expert by any means. Um, But a longtime family friend of mine, named Rachel Nesvig, who's from Tacoma, is a really good player at it. Okay. Like, in fact, if you Google the name of that instrument, she's the first video that shows up. Oh, sweet. Like she's she's like internationally renowned as a player of this like very niche instrument, but very important instrument to Norwegian culture. Right. And so she I remember her talking with me way back in the day when Lindsay Sterling the like violinist that was doing like EDM and dubstep stuff when she had like a couple hot songs. I remember talking to Rachel and she was like, Oh, it'd be like so cool to do something like this. Um, but do like a Nordic version of it. And I was like, yeah, that would be cool. Didn't think about it for a long time. And then was working on this song and was like, I need to hit this girl up. Ah, okay. Sound when you play it in reverse. reverse, reverse. super interested in the idea she came to the studio she like totally crushed the recording of it it sounds so good and then she's going to be playing live uh at the show as well 26 right yeah that's awesome so and i know you're incorporating a couple other people into that show as well right so let's talk about the show yeah uh, now that we're here so um i believe you have your girlfriend jacqueline she's going to be doing a live painting yes she's a super talented visual artist so she'll be on stage um, up on a stage riser with a big canvas painting during um, like about halfway through the show, she comes in as like incorporated in the stage performance as a painter. Awesome. Also a longtime friend of ours um, who's a really talented dance choreographer and silk fan performer. Oh, okay. if you know what that is? They're yeah. like these like flowy fan yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. She's really, really talented with that. And she performs at like, really dope festivals from like EDC to lightning in a bottle and like all these big EDM festivals as a dancer. Um, 
she has choreographed like eight solos to um, different songs. And so she'll be performing throughout the entire show as well. Um, and then a good friend of mine, Nico, whose stage name is Nuri's, he's from Maui in Hawaii. Yep. He's flying out and he'll be doing um, most of the tour with me as the support act and will also be on stage for my set doing all of our verses for songs that we've collaborated on. Oh, awesome. Damn, so you get, this is like, you're, see, this is one of the things I love about what you're doing is you're incorporating so many other people into it too. Like I said, again, earlier, music is such a collaborative thing, so it's cool to, not only are you doing the music portion of it, but you're also bringing in other elements. I think that that's missing a lot with people that perform now. They kind of just get up on the stage, they have the back vocals, they scream over the back vocals, and they get off after two songs. But this is cool, you're creating like a whole... One of the things I love about a lot of the newer hip-hop acts, like let's say like Tyler, the creator, is when you go see a show of theirs, it's an actual show. It's not just a rap concert where somebody's just, again, rapping the back vocals. There's theater, there's production, there's lights, there's fire, all kinds of things. Yeah. This, this is awesome, man. I love this. Yeah. Tyler's such a great example of that. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the album that he most recently dropped. Um, uh, Tyler Bonivar is like his, or whatever. It was Call Me If You um, Get Lost, right? Call Me If You Get yeah, Lost. Yeah, I listened to that show. He had like a, a a new like moniker, anyways. I can't remember what. Oh he called yeah, it was himself. the yeah, Tyler Bol- Bolvenair, Bol- Bolvier, Beauregard. Yeah, yeah, he had some like some bougie like European name. Yeah. Um, but he his his show is so dope because it feels like this like whole theatrical thing. Yeah. And I guess like the concept about it is like he's like a world traveler is like this character that he plays, and you're at the show and the set pieces and the video component. You like randomly feel like you're in Italy or yeah. like randomly feel like you're on a train in France and like it really feels like you're there. That's like the coolest thing to me when people um, who are doing a musical con- performance can really just like make the rest of reality melt away and right. you're like really inside of what's happening. And so I, I hope there will be um, an element of like immersion in this concert that I'm putting on. It's like definitely my intention. Yeah. Um, but it's the first time that I've done something this big and this involved and so – It'll be the first of probably many, and I'm sure it'll continue to grow and evolve and all of that stuff. Definitely. So how long did it actually take you to complete the EP? Um, It happened over the course of probably four months. Okay, and then this started around like roughly what time? Like mid-November. So I started making the beats while I was... Well, we were driving in between shows on tour in Europe last November. Okay. I'd pull my laptop out and headphones for like maybe an hour when we're driving around and try to make a beat. And then we like get to the show and like whatever, do the same thing next day. And I think by the time that I got back from that trip, I probably had like two or three beats from that project that, um, that kind of solidified the theme. Yeah. Wrote like another five. And then narrowed it down and started writing the vocals after that. Okay. When did this kind of take a life of its own? Because like you said, now you're challenging yourself to do a whole different thing with the stage show and with um, the videos and the artwork and things like that. So when did this kind of become a bigger project than just making the EP? Sometime around the new year, I think. I, I've i had this idea of doing this like big immersive show for a long time, but I don't really know how to like pull it off. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, like I said earlier, I'm pretty new to the video editing side of things and super new to lighting design. Like I learned how to do it for this show, basically. Yeah. So I'm yeah, like yeah, maybe the, the two or three months Instagram into video it. of you doing it, yeah. Yeah, yeah when I, I said, first got all the equipment, yeah. I made a post where I, I like – had all the gear and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, 
but I figured it out. A lot of research, digging through forums, YouTube tutorials, asking some friends that I work with at music venues and figured it out. I feel like it looks really good. Um, but I don't, I don't know, somewhere around the new years, I think I like got the confidence and, and especially with like how the EP was sounding and how like important the concept behind it was to me. Yeah. And I was like, I think maybe this is the one that's worth like going all out for. Damn. That's awesome. So how many dates are going to be on the tour? 11 shows, 11 shows. Uh, Washington, Oregon, and California, um, three to four in each state. Awesome. Is there any talk of like maybe more? Hopefully. So my only three shows on this tour are going to get the whole AV production. Right. We're going to do um, one with almost the whole cast in Bellingham, almost the whole cast in Portland, and then Tacoma. And Tacoma is going to be like the big one. Bunch of like hometown legends are going to be there as our support acts as well. We're doing like multi-camera filming and recording of oh, the whole cool. thing. And the reason that I'm doing it, um, hometown show with all our friends there and recording it and all of this stuff, is I want to use this as a resume piece to start working with like a bigger agency or a bigger label that can just put me in front of a bigger audience than yeah. what I can do as a totally independent person. I mean, I, I have some support from some smaller record labels. I have friends that release other people's music and put some promotional efforts behind it. And that's awesome. But that's not like a Sony music or a Warner right. music. You know, that's like a very, you know, my friends are doing like uh, grassroots effort, like independent record labels too. And it's great to have that support. But it's still very much is like being an independent artist. Yeah. I'm making my own music. I'm like mixing and mastering my own records. I'm like doing my own artwork. Um, I have a so, friend oh, that so helps you did this out. artwork. Yeah. Well, I have some AI help with that oh, artwork. <laughs> see? Uh, but like doing, I'm booking my own shows for the yeah. tour. I'm doing my own press releases and PR campaigns and like organizing all of that stuff. So that's why to someone from the outside looking in, they're like, this is, they're like three songs and 11 shows and it took you like five months to put this all together. Mm-hmm. It's because I literally like I do my day job to pay my bills yeah. and then I come home and spend like the rest of my waking hours like building towards this. And most people at a high level, you think of like a Drake or a Kendrick, have like tons of people behind them. Their labor, their management team, totally. They have the funds to hire people to do the things that they don't know how to do. I have some funds that I can spend on this, but really it's like, if I can't afford to hire someone to do it, then I either need to not do it at all or I need to learn how to do it. Yeah. And I'm not going to not do it because I'm like too motivated to make this right. thing dope now. So that's why I'm like learning all this new stuff and spending weeks and weeks to put it all together. And I feel like it's totally worth it because I feel super proud about how it's turning out. But it took me a long ass time to do it. And I think realistically for me to get up to the next level of my career where I want to be, this type of product needs to happen every quarter, not every other quarter. Right. And so I think that's going to take either getting some team members behind me that can help take some of the workload off or do some of the things that I don't know how to do or do some of those things better than I know how to do. Um, or I may randomly have a hit song on this record and make a million dollars and then I can just hire those people. And then the next video will have a uh, homeboy in it. Yeah. Doing some crazy ski jump. Yeah, hell yeah. yeah that'd, be that'd be so cool. tight. That'd be cool. Like you performing, <laughs> and then he ski jumps over like behind you. Yeah. The camera pants up. That'd be sick. Um, man, I had a thought, but I can't remember what it was going to be. Oh, back to what you were saying, though, about 
doing your regular job and then coming home and having to be creative. I think people don't realize that, especially in the early days when you don't have the backing and things like that. You not only have to go work your regular job to support your creative job, but then you also have to find the energy to be creative once you leave work. You know, we're already taxed enough as it is having to be at our jobs and things like that. Then you come home and try to find that energy again. So it goes back to your point of, oh, it's only three shows or whatever, 11 shows, three songs, but it's like the amount of legwork that had to go behind it. People just don't see. Yeah. Well, you know it very well from being a podcaster for years and years. This is like your extracurricular, you know, your side hustle. Yep. And you guys show up here often after working like hard jobs in the airline industry. Yeah. Tired after doing eight plus hours of work and all of the stuff that comes with that. And then somehow having to like hit into second gear, like flip a switch and get your second win and like make a hit podcast is like, or a hit song or, you know, whatever the situation may be. It's like, you're absolutely right, man. It's a lot. And I think that a lot of people would want to do it, but I don't know that everyone's like capable of it. I don't know. Everyone that tries is effective Mm -hmm. at it either. Um, I feel really lucky that my day job is still in the same industry that I'm like being an artist in. So I don't, I think anyone that wants to be a a musician or an artist or any creative job that has to go work like sales job or go work service industry, I feel really bad for people that have that grind. I have a lot of respect for people that still push through that grind, but you have to like completely change your brain from one to the other. Yeah. I think that's one thing that has helped me have. Um, what successes that I have had is because I get to just keep thinking about stage production or yeah. keep thinking about what it's like to be on tour because I work at venues or work in a studio or produce other artists. And so my brain is like very much always on creative stuff. I think as a sound engineer at venues, especially, it is like the service industry of the music industry because it's like you're there to serve someone else's concert and make sure that their experience on stage is good. So it can be draining too. Not everyone that I work with is nice. Not everyone that I work with knows that I'm also an artist or respects me as a person at all. Um, But at least I am in a situation where I can like learn from and benefit from all of these experiences. Definitely. And it all kind of mingles together. Like now you understand what, from not only as a since you're on the sound engineering part, you understand what it takes to make that artist sound good too. So when it's your turn to be doing it, you know exactly what needs to go in to make sure that you sound the best quality that you can. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. That's all. It's a lot of work and effort. But man, this this project sounds like it's about to be amazing. The visuals look insane. The show sounds super cool. I love how you're incorporating so many other people into it too. Yeah, I think this to- is this might be the the one that propels. I hope so, man. It feels that way. It, I definitely feel like it has culminated like everything that I've ever been good at into yeah. one endeavor. And so um, even there's there's a lyric in the song that ended up getting cut from the EP, but that I'm still performing. It's like one of the last things that I say at the show. It's like now, um, now I, I want to say, now you, me, he, she, they, we all know it regardless of the verdict. And if for some reason this is the last time, at least somebody heard it. Ooh, That's okay. like, and that's how I feel about the whole thing. Like I have created a monument that I'm really, really proud of. Yeah. And even if like it, it doesn't hit or if people like don't connect with it in the way that I think they will, I still, I'm going to be like, yeah, I did that. Yeah. I did I that think shit. It's dope. Yeah, for sure. 
What is one thing that you want people listening and visual or seeing visually to get from the CP? Like take like what I want people to take away from it. You yeah, mean? take away maybe not, maybe yeah, take away as in uh, as you as an artist. Like what what do you want people to learn about you from the CP? Um, I. I think what I'm hoping to show is like a breadth of skills. I don't have to be the best at one thing, um, but I do hope that people will like see and recognize that I've become really, really skilled at a lot of things. And that's what I hope to showcase is like, um, yeah, just like a breadth of skills and like a um, like a, a, a width of skills, I should say, and a breadth of work. Awesome. And what I hope other artists would take away from it, if they like the project, is to be authentic and to pull as many like real true experiences from your real life and your family and your background and like put that into your art because I think that is what makes really good real art. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Life experience I think is the best art. Yeah. Definitely. I'm going to give you a minute. Plug whatever you want to. Tell them where to go on Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Awesome. We got the Nordwest Tour, 11 dates uh, up and down the West Coast. Uh, you can find all of the show info and tickets on my website, www.beatsbytour.com. And the music video for Froze featuring DJ Abilities, which is the first song on the EP, that comes out May 17th on my YouTube channel, YouTube slash Beats by Tour. We're premiering it at noon on the 17th of May. So if you want to tune in and chat with us and watch it live, you can tune in then. You can watch it after the fact. And the whole rest of the EP drops at our EP release show on May 26th. And that's going to be at Alma in Tacoma, Washington. Beats by Tour on social media everywhere. It's all the same across all of them? Nice. That makes it, makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Um, okay, one song from this EP that you think, or actually, let's cut the EP part. One song from your entire discography for somebody new that has not heard your music yet, would you want them to check out? I released a song last November called Wanna Go that I was like really, really proud of. Um, it was the, f- I feel like it was the first like really successful blend of rap and EDM into one song. Um, I'm singing this kind of like melodic R&B kind of hook. Close friend of mine, Nuri's, who I collaborate with a lot, has an awesome verse. And then there's like this big hard-hitting EDM drop. And um, that got released on our buddy Ill Gates record label, who's like an awesome DJ producer from up in Canada. Awesome. And I think that's been like a fan favorite since we've released it. Cool. And will that be a part of the live show? or We are performing that live at the nice, show. Nice, yeah. nice. Awesome. All right, well, that has been the first episode of Structuralist Conversation. Thank you, Tor, for joining us. Thanks for having me. It kind of felt, you know, right, being the, you being the first person since we've been working together for so long. Yeah, hell yeah. And thanks for having me, bro. Of That's course, awesome. man. Thank you so much. It just depends how far you want to go.